Well, it all began for me in the fall of 1992. At that time, I was in the fall of 92, I was serving a, 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 a sister congregation, Trinity Presbyterian Church, Montgomery, Alabama. And it, have you ever, let, let, me just, let me just kind of break it down here, get down to the brass tacks here. Have you ever been put in a situation where you missed the meeting and they made you the chairman? Anybody? Anybody have, do I have a show of hands? You missed the meeting, and they made you the chairman. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. And I had a legitimate reason. I was officiating at the funeral of an elder's father. I mean, I couldn't have made the meeting. But a, a group of pastors who were in the presbytery there, that southeast Alabama presbytery, they were, they were forming because the presbytery was somewhat new because it had divided and, and, and so forth. They, they wanted to form a new missions committee for the presbytery. And so all of them showed up, but yours truly, because I was doing a funeral. And they made me the chairman. And about maybe an hour after I had gotten back to, back to my office from the funeral home, one of the pastors called me and said, we just elected you the chairman. Good luck. Now, what I didn't know at the time was that wasn't good luck. It was going to be good grace. Because here's what happened. About one month later, in November of 92, I got elected to do this in October. Green and wet behind the ears wouldn't even come close to it. One month later in November, I got a call from several of the pastors of the presbytery who were not on the committee. You see, Montgomery, Montgomery, Alabama is, some of you know this if you've been in the service, you know that it's the home of Maxwell Air Force Base. And there were a number of, I'd say, I think, I think if I remember right, it was like eight families who were stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base that were attending and participating in the local PCA churches there in Montgomery. And with one fell swoop, all eight of those families got transferred to Germany earlier, or actually a few months earlier in the, in the summertime. And so all of these eight families representing several churches, Trinity, where I served, was one of them, they, they moved over to Germany, they got settled over there, and in a matter of weeks, they had seen and visited all the churches there, and there was no Reformed church anywhere to be found. And so, one by one, these families, now on German soil, called back to the states and said, help, help, we need to start a new church for Americans and for Germans who were married to American civilians there off the Ramstein Air Force Base and the Lahnstuhl Army Hospital, we need to find a place to meet and we want to start having worship services and we want to plant a church. And oh, by the way, would you ask the Presbytery Missions Committee 
to find an organizing pastor for us who will come over to Germany and who will serve this new fledgling group. Well, so several of the pastors of the Presbytery called me that one day, it was about a week before Thanksgiving, and they said, uh, we need you to be looking for a pastor, not only who has church planting experience, not only must he have experience in the military, and it would be preferable if he was in uh, one of the reserves, either Army Reserves, Air Force Reserves, whatever. Obviously, he, he needs to know how to plant a church and to pastor and to preach. And it would be nice if he would have, to, if he would have some understanding of just how military people think, because they, they are uh, different in many ways. And last but not least, because, because this church is going to engage and interface with the with the, the German culture around it, it would be nice if he had some understanding of the German culture and the surroundings. And they asked me, yours truly, to go try to find a needle in a haystack. I had no clue. I didn't even know where to begin. I'm being honest with you. I had no idea where to begin. In fact, the only thing, you know how much our advertising budget was for this, for this work? It was zero. And lo and behold, I mean, I, I, I thought for several weeks about what in the world you know, where do we even begin? Lo and behold, I did think that, well, one might, nice thing maybe to do would be to call the, the chaplain's commission and see if in their newsletter they would put something in it because it's possible that maybe an army or an air force chaplain might want to transfer over there and to be involved in that work. That was the only thought that came into my mind. Well, in January... The uh, newsletter came out, and they sent me one. And you know how much it was stated in that newsletter? Two sentences that weren't even bolded. Hardly anybody, unless they read the newsletter, would know anything about this thing, about this work. And so here I am at the beginning of, 20, of, of, of 1993 now, just saying to myself, Lord, I don't know what to do. And for several months, I just stood baffled as to what in the world to do. When lo and behold, it was time, and I'll never forget this. <clears throat> we were in the springtime. A couple of months had gone by. It was around March, and it was close to spring break. I do remember that. And I remember that... My, one, of my, one of my children, my daughter, Megan, was, was, was in the kindergarten Sunday school class. And I'll never forget one, uh, one it, was on a, it was on a Saturday, and they had come up to the church because for about an hour, they were rehearsing uh, their scripture verses to the congregation. So they wanted to, to do that in rehearsal. So I came, it was a Saturday, 
And I sat in my office desk, and I'll never forget that little kindergarten class walking by my office and my daughter waving at me, and I waved back when all of a sudden my phone rang. This had been maybe four and a half months since, again, yours truly was elected chairman of this committee. When all of a sudden I picked up the phone and, uh, and I said, you know, you know, hello, my name's Kurt. And uh, this person said, uh, Pastor, am I the right person? Are you the chairman of the, uh, of the Presbyterian Missions Committee? And I said, yes, I am. Uh, he says, well, you don't know me. We've never met before, but my name is Doug Hudson. And I want you to know something about me uh, because I have some interest in knowing more about this church in Germany that's being considered. Uh, and and uh, I, I read the two sentences in the chaplain's newsletter uh, about the need for an organizing pastor over there. So I said, fine. And I began to slip back into my chair saying, okay, God, this, this could be an aha moment here. Well, first of all, I'm finishing up a church plant outside Minneapolis, so I've got some church planting experience. And I'm in the Air Force Reserves right now, too, as a communications specialist, and I've, been, I've had about 20 years of active uh, duty service in the chaplaincy part of the Air Force uh, with communications experience also. Uh, I've I've done two churches so far, and uh, last but not least, uh, I heard that, that there's a need for this church over in Germany. Uh, my wife, Gertie, is a native German, and her family lives only 45 minutes away from this Air Force base. We would consider it a privilege to go over there. I almost fell out of my chair, literally. It, it even gets better. One of the one of the members of his congregation, now again, granted, this is 1993 now. One of the members of his congregation was a pilot for then known as TWA. Remember that? And he agreed and found a way, I don't know how, but he found a way to be able to move all of this family's belongings in a transatlantic flight. He did transatlantic flights to Germany in his work, he was able to find a way to load all of the family's belongings that they were going to take back over to Germany. I still to this day, dumbfounded as I was, not knowing what to go, where to go, what to do, I couldn't help but think of the goodness of God and his grace. There were two times later in, in the fall of 94, about 18 months later, and then in 1996, when I was asked to go over there to represent the presbytery and to check on the work and to do some training, it marveled to me to see how God caused that little fledgling group, six, seven families, and there were, at least when I was there, there were well over 120 to 150 people there worshiping, hearing the word preached, reaching out to those in the local community. I find it interesting, too, that they were, they were using facilities that belonged to a local Roman Catholic church that, that was struggling, and yet they were 
gracious enough to offer the, their community center building for that. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater in this case than all of my ignorance and all of my inability and all of my brokenness, grace was shown. Isn't that the one of the great messages of the incarnation? That the Lord Jesus Christ, although he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we who through his poverty might receive the lavishness of the grace of God upon our lives. And we saw two weeks ago from John chapter 1, verse 14, these words. It says, about Christ and the Word, meaning Jesus, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the one and the unique, the only Son of God, and then these last words, full of grace. Say it with me, full of grace and truth. Now, we've already looked at the truth side of that two weeks ago. Today, what I want to do for a few moments is to look at the grace side of it. And in your worship guide this morning, there is uh, an outline of notes. Obviously, I'm not going to go through every single thing in there. But what I would like to do for a few moments, if you're amenable to it, is to take what is often called the path of grace that the gospel writer Matthew takes in showing us how Jesus' ministry was bathed with the grace of God as he embodied the truth of God. With Jesus, it's not either grace or truth. With Jesus, it is both grace and truth in perfect harmony, in perfect balance, and in perfect working order. When we see Jesus, we see the truth of God. When we see Jesus, we see the truth of God, and we see it manifested in grace. And so what I'd like to do for just a few moments is to look at Matthew's gospel, and I would invite you to follow along with me in some of these passages, and to see how they focus upon grace, keeping in mind, and our first stop is in Matthew 7, if you want to be turning there here. Keep in mind that Matthew is a Jew, and he is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and this Jewish audience is steeped in their culture, in their heritage, in their understanding of Old Testament law, Old Testament ceremony, performance, ritualism, rote, and so forth. And there are instances that Matthew records to his Jewish, primarily Jewish audience readers of accounts that happened in Jesus' ministry that no doubt would have blown the minds of his Jewish audience when they read them. We'll see a couple of them. First of all, let's start in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 7, to see that first of all, when 
as he embodied truth, Jesus pictured the grace of God. Verse 7 of Matthew 7. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Look at all the metaphors here that are in this text. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Interestingly enough, in this context of asking and seeking and knocking, Jesus uses the, the picture of a father who would love his children. And Luke picks up the same thing in Luke chapter 11, you know, where, where in a sense, he, he says to those, you know, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and probably you have, you have received some of those good gifts from your father, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is gracious and kind and loving to the very core, he will show his love to you. In this text, by giving you the good gifts that you ask for by faith, in, Luke, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, it's asking for the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you at this time asking, seeking, and knocking? Because all of these involve prayer. So I want to remind you again, as I have for many weeks, as you go into the new year, my challenge to you is to pray daily the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, as, as many as you can, as little as you can, depending on your schedule. It's by asking, it's by seeking, it's by knocking and presenting our requests before the Lord that God does some amazing and wonderful things in our life. Our second stop is over one chapter later in Matthew chapter 8. Here where we see as he's embodied in truth, Jesus prophesies grace. Now, this to me is amazing because notice who comes while he's at Capernaum. Notice who comes to Jesus. It says in verse 5, a centurion came to hear. Now, we just read over that and just gloss over it. We need to understand that centurions, Roman centurions, were, were despised by the Jews. And yet, this centurion comes, and he asks Jesus, he says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And so in verse 7 of Matthew 8, Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to, to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. This is where he prophesies or foretells in advance in the future the grace of God. Verse 11, 
I tell you, many will come, that's future, from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's a Jewish concept. Other gospels say kingdom of God. This is kingdom of heaven for the Jewish concept. While, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus looks at him in verse 13 and says, Go, let it be done to you as you have believed. And that servant was healed. For a Jewish audience to see that a Roman centurion believed, and not only that, that Jesus was prophesying, that people far and wide beyond the borders of Israel would be coming to recline at the kingdom of God, it would have blown their minds to hear something like that. But it's all a part of the grace of God. Our third stop takes us over just one more chapter, to chapter 9. Notice how Jesus, embodied in truth, will personalize the grace of God. And there are two specific events that are seen here in this text, beginning first at verse 18. Let's read that. This is, this is about the, the, the ruler in the synagogue named Jairus, but the woman with internal bleeding is a part of this process. Verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Verse 20, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, "Here, notice the personalized part here. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Now drop down to verse 27. See the personalization of this again with the two blind men. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Notice again the personal part of it. According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. You know, it's one thing to know about grace. It's another thing to embrace the grace of God and to express it personally as this woman with internal bleeding and these two blind men. They come to Jesus desperate because they probably tried everything else. And Jesus, seeing their personal faith and trust, he grants their request for healing and for restored eyesight. Our next stop is over in Matthew chapter 11. This is a very interesting passage here because we have to understand the context in which Jesus has said it. We, we often see these verses taken off out of context. Let me just remind you in Matthew chapter 11, 
beginning at verse 20, Jesus starts to denounce these cities such as Chorazim and, and, uh, and Capernaum and Bethsaida. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So here is set a context of disbelief, of, of sin, of blindness, and disobedience. They saw the miracles performed by Christ, but they do not want to respond to it. They keep saying, give us another sign, give us another sign, give us another sign, but they chose not to believe. It's to that sin of hard-heartedness and blindness and refusal to believe that Jesus now in verse 25 declares in a prayer to God, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these truths about your kingdom to the simple-hearted, to those who want to follow and trust and obey you, but to those like has already been mentioned here, they won't see it. They won't get it. And so the context of this, of this passage here in Matthew chapter 11 was sin, disbelief, hard-heartedness that had been felt. And then when you overlay on top of all that, these people were living under the weight of oppression in Rome. They were living under the culture of domination by the religious leaders. And then they had a local king named Herod and the successors that came after Herod that were seeking political power over them. Everywhere they turned, there was oppression, control, domination. And then they were surrounded by, in many instances, by those who would not believe. And it's to that context that Jesus offers these incredible words of grace, these promises of grace, I like to call them. Verse 28, Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light with all of the oppression that they were feeling externally in this world that they lived in in the first century, Rome, Herod, religious leaders, and then the internal oppression that some of them were feeling from the guilt of their own sin. Jesus promises grace. Interestingly enough, that word grace in the original can also be, be seen as rejuvenation. He offers to rejuvenate your life. Two more stops and then we're done. Matthew 15. This is an incredible text of the faith of the Canaanite woman. Now keep in mind, Jewish readers are looking at this and Matthew is recording these events 
And yet many of them are not involving Jews. And here's another one. We've already seen the Roman centurion. Now in chapter 15, verse 21, we have this account of this desperate woman coming and pleading to Jesus for help. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman. Again, a Jew would look at that and say, why is, why is this in here? A Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But notice what happens. He did not answer her a word. Now, does that sound like the Jesus that you know? He didn't answer her a word. And the disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. In other words, she keeps repeating over and over again, Help me. Have mercy on me. Give me relief. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Then finally, after looking at the disciples in verse 24 and saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it says in verse 25, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And then we have these words that Jesus said, would have, which have often been misconstrued and misunderstood. Jesus says in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What Jesus was doing, and first not answering her, not saying anything to her, and then making the statement, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, and then thirdly, for, for him to say, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dog. First of all, that word dogs there is not the word for, it's not a word meaning like a savage dog or a wild dog of the, of the like a wolf that's out, no. It's more of a house pet. Now, I don't know about you, but in my house, my little Bichon, Belle, who's 15 years old, she's every bit a member of the family. Can anybody attest to that with your pet? You know what happens when you lose a pet in your household, don't you, some of you? It's like there's a death in the family. The affection that you have for that pet. It's, it's like that pet is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a full standing member of your own family. And oh yeah, I gotta tell you, we have a stocking for our pet that hangs by the chimney with care. I'm not the only one who did that. How many of you, how many of you have a stocking for your pet? Be honest. Oh, I see a, I see a number of hands going like this. <laughs> they're like a member of the family. And it's to that type of affection that Jesus compares heathenism, which is what this Canaanite woman was. She was not a Jew. She was, she was the, the ranking stock of the Gentiles who had no faith at that time in Christ. She'd only lived with hearsay, but she heard that there was one who does miracles and acts of healing. And so she makes a trek to find him. And then Jesus, in an effort to draw out her trust and her faith, 
in God and in him. She makes this statement. He makes this statement. It's not right to take the bread, the manna, the food that I'm giving to these Jews at this timetable of God's plan in history and give it to dogs. She didn't even, she wasn't even offended by that one bit. She looks back at Jesus and she says, yes, Lord, but even the beloved house pets eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What an incredible statement of faith. She recognizes her lowliness before the Lord of glory. She recognizes that she's not deserving, but yes, by faith, I want to be in this household, and I just simply want the crumbs that fall from the master's table to come and touch my daughter because I believe that those crumbs are more than sufficient like a mustard seed of faith to touch my demon-possessed daughter and to heal her. You see what happens. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Jesus was doing everything that he can to cultivate, even provoke her faith to rise and to blossom and to be all that it was meant to be. And it says at the end of this text, in verse 28, it says her daughter was healed instantly, or in the, in the original, it's at that, in that very hour. Finally, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19 to see... In Matthew chapter 19 and 20, we're not going to read all of this. Too often, these accounts of the rich young ruler at the end of 19 and the parable of the vineyard in chapter 20, unfortunately, there's a chapter division there. It shouldn't be because it's all one flowing discussion that Jesus has, first with the rich young ruler, with the disciples there, and then after the rich young ruler goes away, Jesus continues to talk and to give this parable of the vineyard. Now, here's what I want you to notice specifically about this text. The last verses in chapter 19 has Jesus saying these words. Verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now notice the order, first will be last and the last first. Now, you immediately go into the parable that Jesus tells us in chapter 20, and at verse 16, Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he? Or does he? You see, we look over those words too quickly. Jesus actually reverses them. Did you see that? He reverses it. In verse 16, it says, the last will be first, and the first last. Now, why would Jesus say to the rich young ruler and to the disciples who were listening to Jesus talk to this rich young ruler, many who are first will be last? It's because the rich young ruler was first in his society. He had it all. He was esteemed, he had possessions, he had wealth. He was, for all practical purposes, he was obeying 
outwardly the law. But Jesus struck him to the heart and said, but you lack one thing. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Renounce it. Because that's what he was depending upon. And Jesus says, come follow me. He was unwilling to do that. And so although he was first in society, he was last in Jesus' world. And the disciples, Peter and all of them, who come to Jesus after seeing the rich young ruler walk away, they look at Jesus and say, well, we've left all to follow you. It's those who have left all to follow him that the second part of that saying in 1930 comes true. The last, those who are deemed in the society not having much, but who are leaving all, they are first in the kingdom of God. Now, no doubt Peter and some of his disciples, thinking now that they are first in the kingdom of God, they have a chance to puff up their chest and to have some pride and to say, okay, we're going to be great in the kingdom of God. We're going to sit on thrones judging all over the kingdom of heaven. It's to that that Jesus gives them the parable of vineyard in chapter 20. They were some of the first to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Like those parable, in the parable here, those first workers who begin working at the vineyard at the beginning of the day. But at the end of the day, after a wave, after wave, after wave of workers come through, and then the last group of workers come in one hour before sunset, they do their thing, they do their work. It's time for everybody to be paid and go home. The ones who came the last got the same amount of pay as those who started at the crack of, crack of dawn. And so those like Peter who are saying, well, wait a minute, we deserve more. Jesus says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because it's all of grace. The fact that you are in the kingdom, in the vineyard working, is sufficient enough because no one gets into the kingdom, into the vineyard, into God's vineyard, into the kingdom of heaven by any work that they have done. It is all by the grace of God and his loving kindness. As Michael Card says here, it is the chesed, the, the, the Hebrew, the chesed, the loving kindness of God that you have entered by faith. The Lord Jesus Christ came today, dear friends, as we close this time of Advent and remember that He came in the fullness of time. He came in the fullness of, 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 of truth. He came in the fullness of provision. He came in the fullness of love. And yes, today, balanced with truth and with glory, and all the other great things, Jesus comes balanced in the fullness of grace. Where there is grace, there is truth in Jesus' ministry. Where there is truth, there is grace. You cannot separate the two of them. They must be woven together beautifully in our minds, in our obedience, and in our actions. 
one with another and with the world out there. It is my prayer, and I encourage you to look at the Spurgeon meditation later, perhaps later today, to, to marvel at the wonder of God's love and his grace for you in sending Jesus as the truth of God and the grace of God. Because it's only when you begin to see that Jesus comes in the fullness of grace and truth and love and provision and joy, all these and many, many more, will you begin to understand in a more wonderful way the greatness and wonder of Advent for you. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, our God, we realize in so many ways that we do not fully comprehend and marvel at the wonder of Advent. That in the fullness of your time, you sent your only begotten Son to come in the fullness of your provision, the fullness of your love, the fullness of your truth, the fullness of your grace, the fullness of your joy as the angel sang, glory to God in the highest and peace upon those whom God has favored and has found grace. Lord, we need to embrace in our lives today more of that the wonder of that grace and truth in perfect balance and harmony in our lives. It must be a graceful truth and a truthful grace that must resound in our lives along with all of these other wonderful elements that mark Advent too. So would you hear our prayers today, O oh God? Would you work in our hearts and lives? Perhaps there's some here today who do not know the fullness of God's love and the fullness of God's grace and his truth. And you've come today seeking and searching or maybe you're watching online and you're seeking and you're searching for answers in your life, for peace, for hope as you move into the new year. Maybe you realize that you need to receive the gift of eternal life. If that's your desire, then simply pray a prayer, something like this, but remember it comes from your own heart. Lord Jesus, I know you came in the fullness of grace and truth to show us the love of God. Today I realize that I have gone astray from God. I have gone my own way. But today I am turning to you and I'm embracing your grace and your truth in my life. And I ask today that you would give me the gift of eternal life as I turn from my sins and my selfish life and turn to your love and your grace. Help me from this day to live for you. Lord, you've heard those prayers, and I pray 
that you would work a work of grace and truth into each person who prayed that and to all of us to strengthen and deepen our faith, to realize anew and afresh how you came for us in the fullness of truth and grace. These things we ask in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.